You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLeggi. Are the newer methods of colorectal cancer screening, including fecal blood and DNA testing, as effective as the colonoscopy? When should fecal testing be used in place of a colonoscopy? Joining us to discuss state-of-the-art in colorectal screening and primary prevention is Dr. Douglas Rex, Distinguished Professor of Medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine and Chancellor's Professor at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Welcome, Dr. Rex. Thanks, Mark. So, Doug, I have a lot of questions here, and we'll get right to it. When we talk about fecal testing to detect, we'll say, cancer, are we talking about looking specifically for cancer, or would these be tools that we could also use to find polyps rather than imaging or using a colonoscopy? Yeah, sure. The primary focus of these tests is really cancer detection. They do have some predictive value for particularly large polyps. So the fecal immunochemical tests probably for advanced adenomas have in studies had you know, sensitivity that's been up in the 20 to 30% range, but they don't do nearly as well as imaging tests. So the major focus is really on cancer detection. And I guess I should go backwards for a second. The fecal immunochemical testing, what is that exactly? What are we testing? The fecal immunochemical test, or what people call FIT, is basically an immunoassay for hemoglobin. There are some assays that have looked at other proteins in the stool, like haptoglobin or the combination of hemoglobin and haptoglobin, but most of them are tests for hemoglobin in the stool. And these tests have better performance characteristics than the older GUIAC-based cards, such as, well, the one that was most commonly used was the Hemocult 2 card. And actually, the most recent guidelines recommend that we should now be substituting the FIT for the older Hemocult 2 card for screening test. Now, Hemocult Sensa in the most recent guideline, which is sort of the improved version of GUIAC-based testing, and it's in its application, it's very similar to the Hemocult 2 card, is considered to still be acceptable. You know, there have been some comparative studies with different results, but I think overall the movement right now is toward the FIT. The FIT has an additional advantage in that they're generally easier to do, and so adherence rates tend to be higher. And two recent randomized trials from the Netherlands showed that there were 10 and 12% gains in adherence rates. So the combination of better sensitivity with about the same specificity plus better adherence means that about twice as many patients with advanced lesions, cancers, and adenomas get detected. So the FIT test itself, I'm used to the GUIAC test where the patient or yourself during a rectal examination or the patient with their own stool would place it on a piece of specialized paper and you put a color it in there and look for blood. Is the FIT test different? I mean, is how you obtain the sample different for the patient? Well, that's going to depend on which commercial assay is used. And, you know, that was actually just shown in the annals of internal medicine to potentially be a problem. There's a German study that looked at five or six different FITs. And in the United States, we have a number of these tests that have been approved by the FDA. And I think that generally people have not anticipated that the commercial performance of these different tests was going to be dramatically different. But in the German study, 
which is one of the biggest studies to compare. There haven't been that many studies that have compared different assays, showed that there were really substantial differences in performance. That's a problem right now because we have a variety of different assays. And I think that we're going to have to step back because we need similar studies like that in the United States. I would encourage people to, I'm sort of reluctant to name which commercial assays to use, but some very large groups that have an interest in fecal immunochemical testing like Kaiser and so on have looked at this fairly carefully and made a decision about which one to use. So that's one issue, and that could be a resource for people trying to decide which test. But oftentimes, the number of samples that the patient collects is smaller They may come with basically a hat that's put over the toilet so that the sample doesn't actually fall down into the toilet water. You know, with the Guayac 2 card, you oftentimes, the patient was instructed to use a wooden spatula to get a hold of the stool and then wipe the samples on there. So with the FITS, you typically have either just one or two samples that are tested. And some of them, for example, involve a brush method so that there isn't quite as much stool that has to be handled. The brush is then inserted into a little container, screwed on, and then sent back to the laboratory. Some of the bigger organizations that have made the switch to FITS are using laboratory-based FIT tests. So the patient actually, rather than having it developed in the office, which is another possibility, the thing is actually returned to the clinical laboratory in order to get the result. With the FIT test and with the Guaya cards, one of the other fecal testings could be, I suppose, DNA testing. Can you give us a little insight on fecal DNA testing? Well, the fecal DNA testing has changed somewhat. Over the last few months, the assay that's become available is the Vimentin gene hypermethylation test. And a couple of papers have come from Steve Itzkowitz's group that have evaluated a simplified version of the test that's been commercially available since 2003. That original test looked at over 20 individual point mutations and other changes in DNA and was reported in the New England Journal to have a sensitivity for cancer of 52% back in 2004 and had pretty good specificity at about 95%. So the test was also pretty expensive. It really has not gotten a lot of use. So there's been an effort to simplify it, and Itzkowitz reported a couple of studies looking at a simplified assay where just the so-called DNA integrity assay and then hypermethylation of the Vimentin gene were used. The thing that's actually been commercialized is the hypermethylation of the Vimentin gene, and the sensitivity of that is probably better than the original assay, but the specificity is not quite as good. Specificity may be 90%. The specificity of the combination assay was, you know, in the lower 80s in terms of specificity. And when you lower the specificity with one of these tests, it can become problematic, especially if the test is done with some frequency because you start having so many patients having positives that you're basically just kind of doing screening colonoscopy. And the recent guidelines did not make a recommendation about how often fecal DNA testing should be done because we just don't have much evidence from so-called program sensitivity, how the test performs when it's done repeatedly, say annually or every two or three years. Fecal DNA testing is still considerably more expensive than the FIT. The FIT reimbursement is about $22, for example, from Medicare, whereas you're looking at the range of $240 for the Vimentin hypermethylation assay. The specificity issue becomes greater as patients get older because hypermethylation is just a more common phenomenon in older patients. 
it's hard to say exactly what the role of fecal DNA testing should be at the present time. My own sense is that the better results that we've seen from fecal immunochemical testing would tend to dominate fecal DNA testing because they have pretty comparable sensitivity for cancer. They are probably as or more specific and considerably less sensitive. We can conjure up different approaches like using fit and fecal DNA testing in combination, but we just don't know really how well that would perform, but it might be something that someone who just can't do colonoscopy and wants to get screened might choose to do. I think the other part about fecal DNA testing that's a little bit tricky, it's not as well-defined as fecal occult blood testing, is that you know when the test is positive and the colonoscopy is negative, and that's a pretty common occurrence. Sometimes it's not clear how far to go. My own sense is that people should stop in terms of the evaluation at that point. Some people have done you know, upper endoscopy or CT scanning. I think in general, if the patient's not symptomatic, that's not productive to continue to do more testing in the fear that this abnormal DNA is coming from some location other than the colon. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLegge, and joining me to discuss state-of-the-art in colorectal screening and primary prevention is Dr. Douglas Rex, Distinguished Professor of Medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine and Chancellor's Professor at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Doug, on a more, I'll say conventional, but a more routine screening of the colon with regards to colonoscopy, and we've heard a lot about CT colography. The first thing I have to ask you with colonoscopy, there's some inherent risk to that. We know that, the most common being perforation. Are there things going on now technology-wise to try to minimize that risk? Well, there isn't enough going on to try to minimize the risk of perforation. You know, perforations, about half of them in some series are so-called diagnostic perforations, which occur from usually the side of the scope rupturing the region of the rectosigmoid. I think that can be reduced by the use of thinner, more flexible scopes like pediatric scopes in patients, especially who are at high risk for perforation. So they've basically got a, an abnormal colon. Patients who are on chronic corticosteroids have had radiation to the pelvis, perhaps patients with known severe diverticular disease, fixation of the colon, extensive pelvic surgery, etc. And then in terms of polypectomy, which for skilled endoscopists is the major factor that risks perforation, the main thing in terms of change in technology is that we need to rethink, I think, the use of electrocautery for small polyps. Um, you know, the CT colonographers are not even reporting polyps that are five millimeters and smaller, and some people are still removing those polyps with electrocautery. Electrocautery causes all of the perforations associated with polypectomy, and since most of those polyps are never going to harm the patient, we should really remove them with techniques, cold snaring and cold forceps for tiny polyps that are safe and still, you know, effective for getting rid of the polyp. But those are the main things, and it's a really important area because perforation has become sufficiently common that I think it's becoming a public health problem in the United States. And we definitely need to have it in mind all the time and work very hard to minimize it across the board. Our screening population should have a lower risk because they have fundamentally normal colons, and we should have perforation rates way, way less than one in a 1,000 in the screening population. With regards to, we'll say, x-ray technology for screening the colon, that being CT, colonography, and still double contrast barium enema, what's your thoughts on the effectiveness of one versus the other? 
Well, with regard to those two, CT colonography, it looks like it's clearly better. We've had some trials that have directly compared them, and CT colonography you know, can achieve sensitivities for polyps a centimeter and larger that are in the range of 90%. Perry Pickard's hands, it's 95%. Whereas with double contrast barium the sensitivity is only about 50%, that data coming from the National Polyp Study direct comparison. And, uh, you know, double contrast barium misses a lot of cancers also. And patients clearly prefer CT colonography over double contrast barium enema, and there's not really much difference in the radiation dose. So there's not much left good to say about double contrast barium enema, except that it's very inexpensive. And if you had a radiologist who was really dedicated and committed to double contrast barium enema, it might be something to consider, but it's kind of fallen off the map in terms of screening. The volumes of double contrast have just continued to fall off. Medicare, of course, declined to make a recommendation to approve a G-code for screening CT colonography, so we don't really have screening CT colonography either. So we've got a little bit of a gap right now until CT screening becomes more widely available. Doug, on the same payment issue regarding the G-code for CT colonography, when we have been talking about the fecal DNA testing, is that something that if I sent my patient for or ordered for that is generally reimbursable? There's a fair number of insurance companies that are paying for it. The test is done in collaboration with LabCorp between Exact Sciences, the original developer of the assay, and then it's, I guess it's administered by LabCorp. To get it, you just need a requisition, and then quite a few insurance companies are covering it. I'd like to thank my guests from the Indiana School of Medicine, Dr. Douglas Rex. Dr. Rex, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Update your clinical knowledge and improve your delivery of patient care by registering for the 2010 AGA Clinical Congress. By attending, you'll learn from renowned experts in the field who will address the most relevant clinical issues in gastroenterology and hepatology. The Congress will be in Las Vegas January 15th and 16th with an optional add-on sedation course January 17th. Bring your nurse and attend this team-based course to obtain the essential information and hands-on training to safely and effectively administer sedation for GI procedures. Learn more and register today at www.gastro.org slash clinicalcongress. The American Gastroenterological Association is the trusted voice of the GI community. Our membership has grown to include 17,000 members from around the globe who are involved in all aspects of the science, practice, and advancement of gastroenterology. Discover what the AGA could mean to you. Visit www.gastro.org.